interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Hi, everybody. I'm glad to be with you up here in cold, cold, cold New York. Now, I've lived in Boston for a while, so I know what cold is like. But it's been a while since I've been in snow. Living in Orlando, we don't get a lot of that, okay? Um, And the evidence of that is, huh, (laughs) Um, I took two steps into the airport parking lot this afternoon and flipped up in the air and fell flat on my back. It was the most unbelievable thing in the world, and Dave, of course, saw it all and laughing the whole time. So he went and he got the brush that he brushes his car off with and brushed me off, okay? Because he didn't want me getting in the car that way. I can't blame him. Uh, and I, and I've, just, I've just found it's very difficult to walk on snow if you're not used to it. So if you're not stumbling around and sliding around, good for you. Uh, I'll teach you how to walk in the hot sand sometime, Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, tonight we're starting a series for this whole weekend, and I suppose the best way to uh, summarize what we're going to be doing at each session is we're going to be talking about the theme of the kingdom of God. Now, that may sound boring to you because it is one of those Christian phrases that we use all the time. Uh, We use it so much that we know we're supposed to use it and we're supposed to understand it, but usually we don't have much um, detailed understanding of what the Bible's idea of the kingdom of God is. And as a result, it can seem vague and thus boring. But I'm hoping that this whole weekend will show you that it's hardly a boring concept at all. In fact, as I'm going to suggest, it's actually at the very heart of what you and I believe as followers of Christ and at the heart of what the Bible itself teaches. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you just ended up having to say to somebody, what are you really trying to say? Ever had one of those? I had it just this past weekend. I was driving from Memphis, Tennessee, down the highway with a friend, and he kept on saying things, and I was such, so thick-headed sometimes I didn't get the point. He said, what you have to eat today, Rich? Um, well, I had this, I had that. Yeah, well, that's good. Three or four or five minutes later, he said, um, look at that sign up there, uh, Burger King. Uh, Oh, yeah, Burger King, yeah. Ten minutes later. You know, uh, a lot of times people get headaches when they don't have much to eat. You know that? And I say, yeah, I do too sometimes. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And you're just driving on down the road. I'm not paying much attention. Finally, it dawned on me and I said, what are you trying to really say here? What are you really trying to say? And he said, I'm trying to tell you, let's stop and get something to eat. I said, yeah, I realized that after 30 minutes of hinting around. You know, that is the way lots of conversations are. I mean, let's face it. We have situations where people will talk about this and they'll talk about that. And sometimes they're more diverse statements than what my friend was giving. Sometimes the clues are not quite as obvious. And yet at some point you have to pause and you have to ask the question, uh, what is this person really trying to say? Now, if that were true in ordinary life, is certainly as true when it comes to the Bible. Here you've got a book with some 60 books in it, written over 
oh, at least a thousand, fifteen hundred years by all kinds of people. Many of them, we don't even know their names from a culture that's so different from ours and so foreign to us. And every single one of these books, every single one is different, saying different things, speaking this way, then another speaking that way. And sometimes we just have to ask ourselves the question, what's it really trying to say anyway? What's it? What's the subtext? What's the idea that's undergirding all of this? And if it weren't the Bible itself that were causing this problem, if that weren't serious enough, and it is, uh, think about us and the diversity of opinions and ideas and interpretations that we have. I mean, the reality is, is that if we were all to sit here and try to write our Christian theology down, we'd have about as many theologies as we have people in this room. There'd be no one in here who would say exactly the same thing. And in fact, we'd find ourselves disagreeing with each other in some fairly remarkable ways. I think we all know that to be true. And part of that's because everybody is interpreting the Bible from their angle, from who they are, from their tradition, from their ethnic orientation or group and all kinds of things that are factors that affect the way we interpret the Bible. And sometimes... That diversity can get so broad, so unmanageable, that we simply give up and say, well, I guess you can just believe anything you want to about the Bible. I guess everybody can just make it say what they want it to say. The only thing that gives us any hope that we might actually be able to rein in some of this diversity among us unify us to some more, a larger scale than we ordinarily find. The only thing that gives us the possibility of avoiding simply saying, well, whatever you want to say about the Bible, just go ahead, is for us to go back and work hard at finding what the Bible is really trying to say. Amen. Okay. That is to get the subtext of the Bible. You see, If it were on the front page, if it were right on the surface, there would be no question among us as to what the Bible's talking about. But the reality is, is that there is question about that. And I can show you this just by simply um, enumerating some of the things that people would say probably right here in this room. If I were to ask, what's the Bible really about? Some people in here would say things like, well, it's about salvation. That's what it's about. That's really what it's about. My salvation, your salvation, people coming to faith and having their sins forgiven and receiving eternal life. That's what it's really about. But then you'd find other people saying, no, 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 that's part of it. But what it's really about is about Jesus. That's what it's really about. And that the subtext of the whole Bible is to talk about this Jesus of Nazareth. Well, another person would say, well, yeah, that's important, but, you know, that's really not what it's really about. Well, what do you think it is? Well, I think it's really about God. Oh, that's a pretty big subject. Then someone else is going to be really smart and come back and say, well, yeah, it's about God, but you know what it's really about? It's about people. And I think all of us in here sense that, yes, the Bible is about all those things, and in fact... Most of those things, if not all of them, are fairly close to what we might call the center or fairly comprehensive of what the Bible says. 
I mean, we can even say the Bible's about donkeys if you want to, because donkeys are mentioned in it, but we don't think that's very comprehensive. Is that fair to say? Okay. But these other subjects, they're fairly comprehensive. Yeah, broad, they cover like big umbrellas. Yeah, that's true. They're the subtexts of the Bible. But I'm going to suggest to you this weekend that the subtext that holds the Bible together most adequately, most comprehensively, the meta theology of the Bible, the theology behind it or beneath it, is not those things that I just mentioned, but that all those things I just mentioned fit into something larger, something deeper, something beneath them, behind them, a meta-theology. And the meta-theology, I'm going to suggest to you that all those things can be supported by and can be seen within the interpretive framework of the theme of the kingdom of God. That if you want to ask the question, what's the Bible really about? It's the story of the kingdom of God. All I can do tonight is basically introduce the ideas, many of which we're going to unfold more as the weekend goes by. Okay, And what I want to do is just propose this to you, that the kingdom of God is the meta-theology, the centerpiece, the overarching umbrella of the Bible, And that as we think about that and understand it better, we'll actually be able to see the pieces of the Bible fit together into a coherent whole. It will no longer be then that we'll all be saying this is the center, that's the center, this is the center, that's the center. But rather we can find something that will bring all of these things that all of us cherish so much together into one system. Now, why would a person ever say that the theme kingdom of God is this meta-theology of the Bible. Why would a person ever say that? Well, let me give you a number of reasons. Here's the first one. The main or the dominant portrait of God in the Bible is that of king. The main or the most important or the most dominant portrait of God in the Bible is that of king. Now, I know right off that's going to set some of you thinking that, well, you know, Rich, I didn't think that that was the case. I really thought that what Jesus came to do was to tell us that God is our father and that father is the theme that is constantly used in the Bible, that that's the dominant portrait of God in the Bible. I mean, after all, how many of us start our prayers off king? No, what we say is father. And the reality is, is that as Christian people, we do look to God as father. We do understand that God is the father of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we understand he is our father as well. But it's important for us to realize that to say God is your father in biblical terms is not to say something different from God is your king. To understand this, you have to get in a time machine, as it were, and go back in time in the Bible days. You can't think about your faith and you can't think about the Bible's presentation of our faith simply in modern evangelical terms. You have to try to work very hard at understanding the Bible in its historical context and how people thought and how people used terminology back in those days. So you have to go back to the days of people like Yul Brynner and Charlton Heston and people like that. Okay, you have to go way back, way back in those days, because the way they spoke about God will be strikingly different from the way we speak of God. 
When Jesus, for example, in the Lord's Prayer said, Our Father who art in heaven, or when the Bible speaks of God as our Father, as it does many times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in the world of the Bible, that term Father did not have the connotations that you and I often have. The connotations that it had in those days was the Royal Father. The Royal Father. You may be surprised to know that even the 23rd Psalm, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When it says shepherd, even shepherd was a royal metaphor that was used throughout the ancient Near East. You've heard of Hammurabi, Hammurabi's law code. He speaks of himself as the great shepherd of the people because kings spoke of themselves as shepherds, as husbands, as fathers of their people much like we speak of George Washington as being the father of the United States, the kings saw themselves as the father of their nation. And so when the Bible speaks of God as father, it's not simply saying that he's father, but rather that he's the royal father, that he's the king father. Now, I have this great privilege in my life that some of you have. It's the most magnificent thing that can happen to a human being short of coming to Christ. Do you know what that is? I'm a grandfather. Okay, I have a little three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter who calls me Pops. Now, there's nothing better in the world. I can tell you there's nothing better in the world than to see my three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter and have her run to me with her arms open like this, saying, Pops, Pops, Pops. And sometimes when she's really enthusiastic, it's Popsy, Popsy. And all she wants to do is climb on me and have me hold her. Can I get on your shoulders? Can I get on your head? Can I climb up this way? Can I do that? Come this way. Do this, do this, this. Color with me. Read this book to me. Play with me. Come on. Let's play hide and seek. On and on and on it goes. Now, my granddaughter does not think of me as a royal father. She thinks of me as a cuddly old man who you climb on. Okay? And that's what I am to her. Well, unfortunately, many people today have the mistaken notion that that's what the Bible means when it says God is our father, that God is pops, that you climb on, and who's this tender, gentle, benevolent grandfather type, but it's not true. The Bible's main portrait of God is that he is the king. Now, this is not unusual because every culture around Israel in the Old Testament saw their gods primarily as kings, whether it was Shamash in Egypt or Marduk in Babylon or Baal or Baal in Canaan. These gods were seen as kings. And the reason for this is because they understood by their proximity to Israel something that was very true and important to remember. And that is that the true God of heaven and earth is the king of heaven and earth. Now, the wonderful thing about knowing that God is king is that he is your father king who welcomes you to himself, who is intimate with you, who is kind to you, who is patient, who is merciful. That's a great thing about our great father king. It really is. But let's remember something when the writer of Hebrews says that we have access to God because of Jesus going before us. He says we approach boldly. Where do we approach the easy chair of God, the easy chair of grace, the rocking chair of grace, the coloring table of grace? No, what he says is we go to the throne of grace because the image or the portrait of God as king is never lost in the Bible no matter what other metaphors are used. He is royal. 
Now, that's a tough one for people living in our day because I come from Virginia where the, where the logo of the state flag is actually sic semper tyrannis, thus always the tyrants, and it's a woman with her foot on a dead man, okay? And that's a Virginian attitude toward kings, let me tell you, okay? So it's a tough one for Americans to deal with, and there are parts of the world where there are still queens and kings, but for the most part they're symbolic. No one lives in the Forbidden City anymore. Been there, look around, nobody's there but tourists, guards, okay? No kings, no emperors. You can go anywhere in the world where there once were kings, and most of those places there are no kings. So this is a very foreign concept to us, so it's no wonder that we don't see it readily in the Bible. And because we don't see it readily in the Bible, what do we do? We substitute other portraits of God as the center portrait. Whatever it may be, your buddy, your friend, whatever it may be. Of course, we know the great celebrations of God's kingship in a psalm like Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord reigns. He rules in righteousness. The world is firmly established because God is the great king. We know that when God delivered Israel out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 15, Moses ends his great song of celebration at the Red Sea saying, The Lord will reign. The Lord will be king when he brings his people into the land of promise. And we know that Jesus Christ, that Christ is not his last name, right? We know this. But rather, it's the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one, or in Hebrew, Mashiach. But we know that by the time of the first century, when Jesus was named the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah, that this word had basically narrowed down to me a synonymous with king. Thus, the king of the Jews on the cross. Messiah meant king. The entire Bible, from cover to cover, has as its primary focus God as king. And in fact, the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, begins with a river, a stream that flows from a place. Do you know where it flows from? It flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. The very last picture in the Bible of who God is, is that he is king. Now, that's a very challenging concept to us and should probably reverse the way many of us live, frankly, because we don't have a God who is easy to deal with, but we have a high and lifted up God who is the monarch of the entire universe. So why would I say that the kingdom of God is the theme of the Bible? One of the main reasons is, is because the primary way in which the Bible reveals God to us is in terms of kingship. But there's a second reason I want to give you, and that is the creation of humanity, the creation of humanity and the nomenclature that's used for human beings, the nomenclature that's used for human beings. I remember one time being in front of a church, standing up there, and uh, I took a risk, but I did it anyway. And I just said, okay, now here's what I'm going to do. There's about, oh, I don't know, 500 people or so. And I said, I'm going to say two words, and I want you to shout back at me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, so here I go. No, Lord, please, cross your fingers and pray, right? Lord, let this work. Okay, so I say, human beings, 
and in unison with one voice, they all shout back at me, Sinners! Sinners! I said, wow, thank you for falling right into the trap. The trap that I laid for you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We are sinners. All of us are sinners in here. Some of us have been forgiven of our sins because of Christ. Some of us maybe have not. But we're sinners. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm about to say here. We are sinners, desperately sinners. But at the same time, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the first thing that comes to our lips when we say human beings, the first thought that we have is very different from the first thought or the first words, as far as we know, that God uttered about us. God, who made us, who knew everything we would ever be, everything we would ever do to each other, everything we'd ever do to him, everything we'd ever do to his world, all the horrible, sinful things we would do and become, when he first made us, he did not sit in the heavenly council and say, let us make sinners. What he said was, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And God created them. Male and female, he created them in his image. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and following. Image of God is the dominant portrait of humanity in the Bible. I've given you what the image of God is in the Bible, but now the human image, the human portrait. What is it? Not primarily, not the subtext of sinner, but rather the subtext, the meta-theology of image of God. Oh, there's one of those phrases. Another one that we know we're supposed to believe, we know we're supposed to say that human beings are the image of God and we don't have a clue what it means. Image of God. We're going to unfold a lot of what it means a whole lot more tomorrow morning, but let me just make this one point to you, and that is this. The image that's being used in Genesis chapter 1, the portrait that's being used is once again hearkening back to the idea that God is the great king. Because if there was one thing that was true of kings in the ancient world, it was this. They loved to have images of themselves. You ever been to um, an Egyptian museum or an Egyptian exhibit, a royal exhibit? Ever been to a Babylonian exhibit, been to the British Museum or someplace like that where you've seen these kinds of things? I remember one time when the Ramses exhibit was floating around this country. It was amazing, really. And um, the Ram- you walked into this Ramses exhibit. You know how it is. You get those little tape recorder things that you put up to your ear, you know, and it says go to station one and turn on the tape. So you walk up to station one and turn on the tape. And there's this 30-foot-high granite statue of Ramses. Okay, very impressive. So you turn on and say, this is a 30-foot-high granite statue of Ramses. You go, well, I kind of knew that. I said that on the tag. Why did I pay for this? Um, so it says, then turn off the tape and go to station two. So you go to station two and turn that on. It says, well, this is a two-meter-high bronze statue of Ramses. Oh, okay. Station three, same thing. Station four, another statue of Ramses. Station five, another statue of Ramses. The whole exhibit was practically nothing but statues of Ramses and his wives and uh, jewelry that he wore. Why is that? It wasn't unusual. This is what kings did. They made images of themselves. We're going to explain why a little more tomorrow. But they made images of themselves to display their honor, to display their glory, to take pride in themselves, to show other people how important they were and how valuable they were. 
as great kings. So when the Bible starts off and says, let us make humanity in our image, is actually saying something quite remarkable. It's saying God as king is making images of himself, just like kings in the ancient world made images of themselves. Now, that expression, image of God, it wasn't exclusive to Israel. You can find it in other cultures. You can find it in the culture, for example, of Egypt. Or you can find it in Babylon. You can find it in Assyria. You can find this expression, the likeness of the gods or the image of the gods in many different cultures surrounding Israel. Once again, not showing that the Israelite faith was the same as the others, but that the others were approximating ideologically, just like they were approximating geographically, the faith of Israel. So here you have it, other people using the phrase image of God. But there was a big difference. Can you imagine, can you imagine who was considered to be the likeness of the gods, say, in Egyptian culture? It wasn't the peasant slave building the pyramids. Who was it that got the title image of God? One person and only one person. Yeah, Yul Brenner. Right, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, the king. He was called the likeness of the gods, the son of the gods. In fact, in Egypt, they actually became gods when they died. They were considered, the royal ones were considered to be in the likeness of God. Now, can you hear how radical the Bible is? How radical the Bible is when it actually says that it's not just kings who are the likeness of the gods. It's not just the kings are the ones who have been made like the great royal king up in heaven. Rather, everyone. And not just men, but as Moses says explicitly in Genesis 1, male and female, he made them. At the very heart of what it means to be human is not sinner. At the very heart of what it means to be human is that human beings are made special, royal creatures. What Moses is basically doing is this. He's lifting the whole of humanity up to the level, up to the honor that was given in the ancient world only to emperors. So the person sitting next to you is royal, believe it or not. Not divine, not perfect, and even sinful, but royal. Deserving of that kind of honor, deserving of that kind of regard, that kind of respect. That is at the very heart of what the Bible says human beings are. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to make sure you know the person sitting next to you. Would you just exchange names and make sure you know that person, please? Just real fast here? Yeah. If you don't do this, you've got to do it with me up here. That's how you want to do this among yourselves. Okay. Okay, now, what did you see there? What did you see? You know what you saw. You saw somebody who's a frail person, somebody that has weaknesses and the like. But now I want you to look back at that person and shake hands this time. And instead of exchanging names, I want you to say, Good evening, Your Majesty. Yeah. Good evening, Your Majesty. Why does that feel so strange? 
Yeah, why does it feel so strange for you to hear those words about you and even to give those words to others? Why does it feel so strange? It's because our meta-theology is not the Bible's meta-theology. We can say all day long that we love Christ, and we can say all day long that we love the Bible, but it does not mean much unless our theology, our concepts of God and people are matching up with what the Bible says about him and about us. Uh, But what do we do? I mean, what do you do when you see someone run a four-way stop sign in front of you? What do you say? Well, there goes the glorious image of God. Is that what you do? Of course not. Of course not. You know what happens to us. We all do it. Out of the same mouth comes praise for God and curses for his image. And, of course, James tells us in the New Testament, brothers, this must not be. The meta-theology of the Bible is the kingdom of God because God is represented in the Bible primarily as king and we are represented as his royal images. There's a third thing. Now that we have God on top and humanity in this kind of vice-regency, this kind of viceroy role, we have to ask this question, how did God relate to people? How does the Bible tell us God relates to people? And this, too, will show us that the meta-theology of the Bible is the kingdom of God. How does the Bible summarize this relationship between divine and human? Well, the main term that's used throughout the whole Bible, and certainly the concept that runs throughout the whole Bible, to describe this main way in which we relate to God and he relates to us, is the word covenant. You've all heard that before. We use the word covenant for all kinds of things. But the Hebrew word berit or diatheke in Greek, the word covenant is all through the Bible. And once again, that term covenant sometimes is used so much. We know we're supposed to understand it, but what exactly does it mean? Well, we don't really know too much about it. But let me give you a little bit of background of it as well. One of the things that was discovered in this past century, I used to be able to say this century, now I say in the past century, was that the way in which the Bible talks about God's covenants is not unlike the way that kings in the ancient world, outside of Israel, arranged political relationships. Great kings, they were often, we call them suzerains, the Caesars, the great czars, the great kings, would make relationships with smaller kings around them, the little nations. The big guy would make relationships with little guys around them. And they would do this by means of treaties, international treaties. And we found copies of these in Hittite and in uh, Babylonian, all kinds of different ages, all kinds of different places, Egyptian, in fact, as well. And the odd thing about this is, is that as these texts were deciphered in this last century, and as people began to understand them, and yes, I had to learn how to read all those chicken scratches on rocks too, all the cuneiform and all that business. As people began to understand them, it was absolutely astounding, but it was discovered that the Bible's idea of covenant, even the literary genre of covenant in the Bible, paralleled remarkably these international treaties. The structure of those treaties were basically these. They were 
a preamble where the king, the great king, identifies himself and then a, a prologue, a historical prologue where he recites all the great things he had done for his people and all these little kings and how they should be appreciative of him. And then they would list off the rules of the relationship with some blessings and curses inside of those. And then often they would have witnesses at the end of it. And oddly enough, when you look at the Bible at places like the book of Deuteronomy or even the Ten Commandments, things like that, you discover that the parallel between biblical covenants and these international treaties are absolutely astounding. Now, we, most of us, are not familiar with those things. If you've spent the time that I spent learning how to read chicken scratches on rocks, then you're probably as strange as I am. In all likelihood, you haven't done that. And so what do we do when we don't realize that Bible covenants and these ancient Near Eastern treaties are so parallel? Well, how then do we understand covenant when we see it in the Bible? We all know it's there. How do we understand it? You know how. We pour our own ideas of covenant into it. So that if you're talking to most people, most evangelical Christians today, covenant means little more than promise. When God makes a covenant with a person, he's basically promising to do all kinds of things. Isn't that great? And that fits very nicely with our idea of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And so it all fits together. A covenant is a promise, and that's wonderful. We've got a relationship with God now that's all completely dominated by promise, 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 promise. But when we begin to realize that the ancient world and its treaties paralleled the covenants of the Bible, we realize that this relationship is a lot different than just a good guy, a God, making promises to little people like you and me. Instead, we discover that, once again, God's relationship with us is like the relationship of a king to his subjects. Remember those international treaties? They were made between the great emperor and the lesser kings and their people. And as a result, they had this royal quality to them. And the parallels in the Bible that are there make our relationship with God much the same. Not exactly the same, but much the same. What were covenants like? Well, we're going to explore that too this weekend, but let me just give you a, a bit of a taste of what we're going to say. Every single covenant of the Bible has saturated, is saturated with the benevolence of the great king, the kindness, the grace of the great king. But it's not just his grace and his kindness to his subjects that's there. On the flip side of that, every covenant in the Bible has the requirement of loyalty from the subjects of the king. Benevolence from the great king, loyalty from his viceroys, his vice-regents. And then operating within that framework of benevolence, kindness, and responsibility of loyalty are these things we call the blessings of God and the curses, the judgments of God. And if you think about it, that's really the dynamic that governs every single period, every single age of the Bible. The grace of God the responsibility of people, the blessings of God, and the curses or judgment of God. It's everywhere in the Bible. Now, what you and I believe as Christians is really a remarkable thing that we believe, and it's this, is that there was one subject of the Father, there was one person who was subject to this covenant relationship who lived absolutely perfectly under that relationship. 
I mean, this guy obeyed the great king of heaven absolutely perfectly. He did not falter for a nanosecond. You know his name? Yeah, Jesus is his name. That's why you're a Christian, by the way, is because Jesus was absolutely righteous and perfect. And so he fulfilled every requirement of loyalty, every single requirement. He did it perfectly. And then when he died to pay for the sins of people like you and me who don't keep it perfectly, he was resurrected and he was given the reward for his righteousness. And the reward was this. The universe. Now, the great thing about Christianity is, of course, is that we believe that by trusting in him, we become his righteousness. It's given to us. And so it is as if we were perfect. And, of course, one day when we die, we will then also be resurrected and we will be given his great reward. So that in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus says, to him who overcomes... I give the right to sit on my throne just as I sit on the Father's throne. Covenant is at the very heart of the relationship between you and your God. Friendship is a covenant friendship. Faithfulness is covenant faithfulness. Grace is covenant grace. It's this international royal treaty model that governs all of the faith of the Bible. That's the third reason why we must say that the kingdom of God, the royal kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the meta-theology of the Bible. Reason number four. Remember the first one? It's because of the way the Bible reveals God as king. Second one, the way the Bible reveals humanity as the royal images of God. Third, that the Bible has as the relationship between these two Royal covenants. Fourth, the destiny of history is the coming of the kingdom of God to earth. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. Imagine yourself living in ancient Babylon or living in ancient Egypt. And you believe that your God is the king of up there in heaven. I mean, he's the, you believe there are many gods, but your, your God, he's the biggest one of all. And anytime he wants to, he can just destroy others and put them in their place. He has rebellion from time to time, but he can really control everything. He's the great king God. But do you know the strangest thing about these great heavenly kings in the ancient world? They were not satisfied simply with being kings in heaven. They wanted to be kings on earth as well. And of course, if you were of the royal family, you knew something that as the image of God, your job as the Pharaoh, your job as the emperor, your job was to get the will of the great God up in heaven and enforce it on earth. In Egyptian, the terminology was ma'at, which means the, the divine wisdom. The Pharaoh was supposed to have insight into the divine wisdom, the way the universe was to be structured, the cosmic forces beneath what what appeared to ordinary people. And the Pharaoh, therefore, was to enforce ma'at, wisdom, everywhere he went. 
That's why he made laws. He didn't do it, at least in terms of the propaganda. He didn't do it frivolously or capriciously, but rather did it according to ma'at. And even when you read something like Hammurabi's law code again, when you read that, you discover that Hammurabi says, Marduk gave me this law. I got it from him. I didn't just make this up. Because the will of Marduk was that his will be done down here. The will of Shamash was that his ma'at be down here. And what we discover is that by understanding the Bible in that environment, in that historical, that ancient Near Eastern environment, it allows us to understand what the Bible says about the destiny of history, the purpose of history. Doesn't it ever perplex you as to why things are? Am I the only person that gets up in the morning and says, why is there something? Am I the only one that does that in this room? I hope not. Occasionally you should ask the question. Don't be like, don't be morbid like me. But occasionally you should ask the question, um, what's it all about, Alfie? What's, where's all this stuff going? Because it seems to be going nowhere. Is there a ma'at? Is there a divine will? And isn't it remarkable that when we don't know what the purpose of history is, that we tend to, again, substitute all kinds of ideas that we get from the world around us. What's the purpose of history? For me to be happy, that's the purpose of history. What's the purpose of history? Well, the purpose of history is for me to, if you're not into happiness, survive. I don't know how many Christians are into those two things and they see that as the purpose of their lives here on this earth. Either to be happy or just to survive. That's what unbelievers search for. If you're giving your life to that kind of destiny, that kind of purpose, you are selling yourself short as a follower of Christ, as someone who is tuned in to the ma'at, as the image of God. What's the destiny of history according to the Bible? It is that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father... Royal Father, our Father who art in heaven. Now, you all know what the picture of the Bible is when it comes to the center of heaven. Every single picture. Revelation 4, Isaiah 6, Daniel 9, uh, 7, all these various chapters in the Bible that portray heaven, it's always a throne room. Always. So when Jesus says, our Father who art in heaven, he's saying, our Royal Father seated in his throne room. He's addressing him as the Father King. Hallowed be thy name. May you always be recognized as King. Long live the King. But now listen to the next lines. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Oh, well, let me tell you. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Well, from the Bible's point of view, God is so glorious, so majestic in his presence in the throne room of heaven that no one can resist him. 
No one would even think of resisting him. He is so magnificent that everyone is compelled to bow before him and to do precisely what he says, freely and cheerfully, exactly as he says it, when he says it. God winks in heaven and the whole universe shakes. Because that's the way it is in heaven. But that's not the way it is on earth, is it? On earth, people go their whole lives never cheerfully and willingly submitting themselves to the great king. And you and I, who even claim to be followers of the king, well, even we don't do all that well. But what was Jesus' dream? What was Jesus' sense of the destiny of history? For what did he, the Son of God, pray? May your kingdom come by your will being done on earth as it is up there. That means that Jesus' vision for the world was that people everywhere would freely and cheerfully submit themselves to the king of the universe. That's the vision of the Bible for the history of the world. It's his destiny. Now, as Christians, we understand how that's going to happen in general terms. We know that we're never going to be able to accomplish that ourselves. We know that one day Christ is going to return, and when he returns, then it will be done. But until then, your purpose in life and my purpose in life is not to seek happiness and not to seek survival. Our purpose in life is to bring the will of God in heaven to this earth. Now, that doesn't just mean in church. That means in the chemistry class. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't just mean in your prayer time or in your little Christian group. It means when you're doing music in music class. It means when you are working with the animals that you work with or in the greenhouses over there. All of this is to be done according to the great ma'at of our great God and King. That wisdom, that holiness. Because our destiny in this little blip of time that we live in is to push forward this great kingdom of God. So I've suggested to you that the meta-theology of the Bible is just this. It is the kingdom of God. And you take little pieces of your faith and begin to ask the question, how does this little piece, like prayer, for example, or singing of all the weird things to do to get together in a group and sing, is that bizarre or what? I'll tell you something. You'll never go to a corporate board meeting and sing. Okay? It'll never happen. But you'll go to a church group or a Christian group, and you'll sing together. It's weird as it can be, unless you put it in the framework of the kingdom. That God is your king who loves to see his subjects dance and sing. That God has made you his royal images so that you can sing and dance like no other creature could possibly imagine. You can even create music. And, number three, what's the third thing? Yeah, that covenant that God has been so merciful to you that he's actually made you, his child, able to sing. And you are responsible to do that in this covenant relationship. And what's the fourth thing? The destiny 
is the kingdom of God. By doing all the things you do as a Christian, you bring about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that. As you begin to think about all the details of your Christian life, don't get lopsided. Keep it focused on this great meta-theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God.